Hello and welcome to the PC Speaking Podcast. This week we are back in our series, Do the Right Thing, Why Morality Matters. Today our topic is sexual immorality. We've had a few questions come through over the past couple of weeks. I hope to see more of those if you do have questions. Uh, Whatever platform you might be listening on, I encourage you to message those and I will do my best to get to them. I answered a few of the more controversial topics in a supplement to the regular podcast last week, and here are the ones we'll be looking at today. This is this first one's actually um, from the first session, or well, no, it was the second installment of this series that we did. And the question was: Do a lot of contemporary churches accept sin? For example, moral sins, adultery, and excuse it with no guidance towards repentance, restitution, and church discipline. And in that one, we looked um, deeply into church discipline, and today we're going to be looking more at the sexual immorality side of things. Another question I received was, does the Bible say it's wrong to live together before you get married? And one more question in the same vein, what happens if you're a Christian and your partner isn't? and they want you to move in with them before asking you to marry them. All three of those questions are relevant in a discussion about sexual morality or immorality, whichever direction you decide to approach it from. This is a very big topic, and it's important to talk about. We're just going to look into this uh, briefly. You could go a long way with this, but we're not going to do that. Um, It would just take forever. In our culture today, sex is often treated as casual and inconsequential, but I want to bring out the idea that there's a lot more to it than that. Um, It is a weighty matter. I believe the Bible teaches that sex is a very weighty matter, and how we view the morality of sex plays itself out in tangible ways in our culture. That doesn't mean it can't be lighthearted and fun in the right context, but it is something we need to understand because it will have a tremendous impact on our lives as individuals, our families, and our culture when it comes to how we view sexual morality. This is one of those things that if we don't address it, talk about it in church in the most truthful way possible, what happens is people end up just kind of going with how they feel about it. They fill in the blanks with things that maybe they don't have answers for. And then that will ultimately lead to negative consequences. I think Christians have fallen over on understanding the weightiness of sexual activity along with the how, the where, and the why of it. I think traditionally it's been something that's a bit uncomfortable for people to talk about. And as a consequence of that, we see sex often being treated as casual and inconsequential, not only in sexual or in secular culture, but also in church pews. And God is not going to bless that. And that's why we need to talk about it. But before we answer any of those questions, the first question we need to answer is what is sexual immorality? How did we define what that is? And we need to understand that first before we can answer much else. So, what is sexual immorality? There are many different things that fall into that category coming from a biblical worldview. And well, secular people as well. Western culture is based on uh, biblical principles. So a lot of the things that Christian people would hold uh, 
as sexually immoral, so would secular culture. Infidelity, adultery, uh, pornography, lust, uh, homosexuality. The Bible talks about that as well. And I think you could put all of that under the heading of fornication, which is kind of an archaic sounding word, but it actually fits the context and has the right meaning for what we're talking about. Because fornication is, what that means is sex between two people who are not married. Very simply put, sin is a good God-given desire that is exercised outside of God's intended context. It's important to understand that. Um, Often what becomes sin starts out as a good God-given desire. Sexual desire is good. It's a God-given desire. It's a good God-given desire. Sexual immorality is sexual desire exercised outside of God's intended context. What is God's intended context? God's intended context for the exercise of sexual desire is within a marriage covenant between a God, between God, a man, and a woman. Now, as Christians, we often attempt to put sins in a certain order. We attempt to rank them from best to worst, worst to best, however you look at it. Interesting thing about that is that our personal sin is usually down towards the bottom uh, in the not too bad category. For instance, homosexuality is one that Christians in general really struggle to deal with, uh, to articulate, to handle, um, to interact with, however you want to put it. But it's one that Christians in general, they tend to either come down really hard on it or pretend it's not sinful at all. But all sexual sin falls in the same category. One's not better than the other. To view sin correctly, we can't compare ourselves to what others do with any kind of sin, not just sexual sin, but any sin. We have to compare ourselves to God's standard. And the reason we have to use that common measure of good and evil is because we can always find someone better than we are, and we can also always find someone worse than we are. So if we use comparing ourselves to others as our standard, it's very easy to find someone and say, well, that person's worse than me, so I'm doing okay. Or the opposite can happen as well. And people can, you know, beat themselves up unnecessarily. Oh, I'll never be as good as this person. And I'm terrible and all of these different things. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, Paul writes, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of our God." One of the key takeaways from that passage that we read is Paul says, such were some of you. And what we learn from that is the only thing that makes one person any different from another before God is justification in the name of the Lord Jesus. So we have to be careful about pointing fingers or labeling one person's sin as worse than another or comparing ourselves to other people as our standard of how good we are, because we're all sinful people. That's the reality. And any discussion of biblical morality, first and foremost, requires a firm grounding in the gospel. And that involves an 
understanding that we are sinful people. And the gospel is the good news that Christ died for our sins, that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. Moralism or legalism without the gospel leaves people alone in a prison of sin they can't escape. The gospel is how we're reconciled to God. His commands are how we navigate life in a broken world. That's Christianity 101. That's what we all need to stand understand. That's where we need to start any discussion about morality from a biblical perspective. That's what we all need to understand. We first believe the gospel to be reconciled with God, and then we follow his commands as the best way possible to live life, to navigate the world in which we live. We have two new questions this week. The first one is, does the Bible say it's wrong to live together before you get married? Let's be as truthful as possible. Let's let's tell the truth. Let's don't sensationalize things. Let's tell it as it is. So does the Bible say it's wrong to live together before you get married? When I hear that question, and I understand what they mean, but this question is another question we should ask. Does that mean living together under the same roof and nothing else? Or does that mean living together under the same roof and fornicating? It's important to tell the truth. Living under the same roof and that only. No, the Bible does not say it's wrong to do that. However, don't live together under the same roof if you're not married because there is a very high chance it will turn into something sinful. It'll turn into fornication. Okay. You don't camp near the water if you know crocodiles live there. It's just dangerous to do that. So telling the truth, it's okay to live under the same roof, but you also need to tell yourself the truth about whether or not you are able to avoid sexual sin in that situation. And the answer is probably no. No, you're probably not going to avoid it. Next question. What happens if you are a Christian and your partner isn't, and they want you to move in with them before asking you to marry them? Don't do it. You're only going to complicate your life and make it more difficult. Life is hard enough. Now, if you are dating someone and they're an unbeliever, do not move in with them. Don't marry them either. And that may sound harsh, but here's what I suggest. Put a time frame on your relationship. If this person uh, doesn't accept Jesus, does not become a believer in six months or whatever reasonable amount of time you decide, break it off. And I know that sounds uncaring, but if you are a Christian and you marry an unbeliever, you are setting yourself up for a lifetime of struggles and problems and stress. There are a few things that cause significant conflict in marriage. One is how to handle finances. Money will cause a lot of conflict in marriage. How to raise the kids. That's another one that causes a lot of conflict in marriage. And religion, the big three. Now, I feel for people who are Christians looking for someone to marry. Um, I, I'm, I'm glad I've been married almost 30 years. I would find it extremely difficult. If you're a Christian, this is something you care about, and you're looking for someone who is a believer to marry, who shares similar views to yourself, it would be, it'd be very difficult to find that. But, and the Bible does speak to Christians who are already married to unbelievers. Uh, life 
you know, if that's you, you live as a Christian and maybe through your testimony, your spouse will become a believer. That's what happened to me. I, I became a believer through my wife's testimony. And anyone who is a Christian who lives or has lived with an unbelieving spouse will tell you that it is not easy. My wife, Christine, can attest to that. We were married 10 years before I became a Christian. If you marry an unbeliever, it's going to complicate your life a lot. It's going to make things difficult. And, you know, frankly, it's it's none of my business. I don't consider what most people do any of my business, but what I say is also true. So you take it, do what you want with it. But the answer to the question is, no, don't sleep with them. Don't move with them, in with them. If they're not a Christian, don't marry them. If you want to have sex with someone and you want to live with them, get married. If you don't see marriage as a possibility, ask yourself, what, then why am I with this person? If I don't want to marry them, but I want to move in with them, that, that just doesn't jive. That's not going to go well. It's not going to work out well for you. So don't sleep with them. Don't move in with them. If they're not a Christian and you are, don't marry them. Um, on another similar thought, some will tell you that you need to live together before you get married to, uh, quote unquote, see if you're compatible. I remember when I met my wife, she was in university and I was in the Marines. And one of the classes she had to take was human sexuality, which was, I remember looking at her, I was like a 22 year old Marine looking at her textbook about sexuality. And I thought it was garbage at 22 as a Marine. But in this class, they taught that you needed to live together before marriage just to just, you know, to see if you were compatible, which like many things, Things people are told in many use of universities when it comes to moral topics uh, is an absolute lie. People who live together before marriage are far more likely to get divorced. It does not work to your advantage to do that. The more sexual partners someone has before marriage, the more likely they are to get divorced. So the divorce rate climbs in correlation with more sexual partners and living together before marriage. So don't worry about compatibility. Of course, you're not compatible. Um, you're young and you don't know anything and you're not compatible. Uh, my wife still hasn't learned how to properly squeeze the toothpaste. And then there's all kinds of things about me that annoy her. Uh, but one of the fun parts of marriage is, is working out your compatibility, uh, challenging each other, um, working out your sexuality with your spouse. That's one of the more fun parts of marriage. But then we come to the real meat of what we're talking about when talking about sexual morality. The big question is, why does it matter? That's the point of the series. Why does it matter? Why not just do whatever you want? Why can't we just live together, sleep together, casually do whatever we want, one night stands, just fool around, sex is nothing more than recreation, and that's it. How do you answer that without just saying, well, because God said so? or because the Bible says so. And first, because God says so, or the Bible says so, are not wrong answers. God is creator. It's his standard. And that's more than enough reason to say we shouldn't do that. We believe what God says is right and good, but it's also okay to explore the why. And I feel like this is something that we've kind of missed out on in the Christian community is exploring the why of some of these things. And it's okay to do that. Um, God says, Hey, come let us reason together. 
there are practical reasons for moral commands and there are practical reasons as to why sexual morality matters. We've already mentioned a couple. Uh, sex before marriage, living together before marriage leads to increased divorce rates. You can look those rates up for yourself. Higher rates of sexual promiscuity and cohabitation lead to higher divorce rates. And someone, even after that, they may still say, so what? I don't see any value in marriage anyway. It's just an old tradition that is no longer relevant. But what that kind of thinking doesn't take into account is that morals solve problems preemptively. They solve problems before we even know what the problems are. But over time, because a problem has been solved through the practice of morality, in this case, the marriage covenant between God, a man and a woman, and sexual desire being exercised inside of that covenant, and that's been going on for a long time. It's only been um, very recently that that institution of marriage has really uh, taken a dive. And when it's been, things have been a certain way for a very long time and marriage has been honored among people, we tend to forget what the problem was that sexual morality solved. Then the moral practice itself begins to seem irrelevant or outdated because we have forgotten why it mattered in the first place. We've lost touch with the consequences of sexual immorality. When culture gives up on a moral practice, the problem the moral practice solved comes back. Our culture and society are based on biblical principles. And people don't know that, or they have forgotten the fact that our culture is based on biblical morality, biblical principles. You know, the idea that murder is wrong comes from the Bible. That's not inherent to people. Let's look at what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. This is a kind of a roll-on from where we were in chapter 5, where Paul was talking about um, the guy who was having, you know, the, the sexual encounter with his uh, father's wife and all that stuff, and they should put him out of the exercise church discipline. This is kind of roll on from that. Um, first Corinthians chapter six, verses 12 through 20 say, all things are lawful to me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of anything. Food is for the belly. The belly is for food, but God will destroy both of them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. God has raised up the Lord and will also raise up by his own power. Do you not know that your bodies are the parts of Christ? Shall I then take the parts of Christ and make the parts of a harlot? God forbid. What do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. He's quoting Genesis 2.24 there. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Escape from sexual immorality. Every sin that a man commits is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. What do you not know that your spirit is the temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God, and that you're not your own? You were bought with a price. 
Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Now, there's a, a, a lot in those verses. We could talk about those for a long time. Um, I encourage you to take the time to read that passage a few times. First uh, Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20 is what we just read there. There's a lot there. Take some time to read it a few times, maybe throughout the week. Meditate on those verses. Roll them around in your mind. Pray about them. In these verses, Paul is given an education on sexual immorality. And this is very much for believers from a more spiritual perspective than a practical, pragmatic perspective. But it's absolutely relevant. Paul says, although everything is lawful, I will not be brought under the power of anything. This is a balance we're talking about between the gospel and God's commands. We're saved by Jesus through the gospel, and biblical man commands give us a roadmap to live the best way possible. This passage is saying something like this. You certainly wouldn't take Jesus with you if you were going to practice sexual immorality. You wouldn't sit down and watch porn with Jesus or take him with you to cheat on your spouse to commit adultery. But in this passage, Paul is telling us that when you practice sexual immorality as a believer, that's exactly what you're doing. In practicing sexual immorality, you are defiling your body and your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's obviously more than enough reason for a Christian to avoid sexual immorality. Christians trust God in understanding that what he says is good and true and right and is the best way to live. Doesn't mean that we're not going to have struggles and problems, but following God's commands, doing what the Bible says, is going to lead to the best possible outcome for us. It's also good to understand that there are very good reasons for what God says that are more physical, more practical, things that affect society, affect culture. Let's say a young couple does everything right. They keep themselves for each other until they're married. Their wedding day comes and they enter into a covenant with God and each other, obviously, promising that they will be together in sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse. They will keep themselves for each other alone until death do they part. Okay, until death. Now, we're going to turn a little bit of a corner here for just a second, then we'll come back. But marriage vows often say that, until death. I want to talk about that for just a second. If you're not planning on until death, if you're not willing to say until death and mean it, don't say I do. The marriage covenant is a big deal. And it needs to be honored. It needs to be solid. It needs to be secure. You need to know that the person that you are married to is going to be with you, support you, help you, not give up on you until death. And that's important. But back to what we were talking about. Okay, The wedding day comes and they, the couple enters into a covenant with God. This is a covenant with God, mind you for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, all of those things, until death do they part. They've entered into that covenant with God. That's a big deal. But the union is not complete until the married couple consummates the marriage, until they come together as one flesh, until they have sex. Think about that. They made vows entering into a covenant with God, but it's not complete until they come together as one flesh, like 
the Bible tells us in Genesis 2.24. That gives you an idea of what a big deal sex is, what a big deal sex is to God. Even after entering into a covenant with God, the marriage is not sealed and complete until the couple comes together sexually. God gives them a very strong desire for that. I know a young couple once who was setting up an apartment. They went shopping for a bed for their bedroom and it was delivered to their house. I actually ended up, or I did the marriage uh, ceremony for these guys. But the groom went to the house to put this bed together that they bought and the bride washed him and kept him company while he did. But she did so over a Zoom meeting. So he set his laptop up on the dresser so she could watch, um, watch him put the bed together. Now, that may sound silly to some, but... I thought it was great that they wanted to make sure they honored the marriage covenant and didn't hurt what they knew was going to be worthwhile. Because when that finally happens, God has blessed us with hormones that our brain releases at the time that we come together physically, become one flesh, that bond us together as a couple. And a newlywed couple is going to need that bond to help them fulfill the covenant. Because life is difficult. It's hard to learn to live with someone else. It's hard to raise kids. It's hard to build a life. It's a lot of responsibility and strain to hold together a covenant that is the bedrock of society. And that's why God reserves sex for the marriage context, because it is very powerful. And if we think we can just have casual sex with whoever, whenever, and no one is going to suffer any consequences, we are crazy. It's bad for you physically and psychologically. It's bad for society and culture. In casual sex, women become less valuable. You know, marriage is devalued. Marriage becomes less desirable, but it doesn't mean it's less important. For a young man, a young woman who has had multiple sexual partners, who has lived with other men, she maybe already has kids, a, a young man who's looking to build a life and family is far less likely to be attracted to that woman. And I don't mean to be hard on that woman, but that's just the truth. That's reality. Many men are saying no to marriage because it's mostly women who initiate divorce. Women generally end up far better off in divorce. Young men are saying, why would I marry a woman who's been with multiple men and support kids who aren't mine? And she is likely to divorce me and make my life a living hell anyway. And I've seen this scenario play out personally multiple times. Now, we're not letting men off the hook either. There, there's a lot of men who are not a prize catch. Um, this, you know, There's a lot of young men out there in the world today who just can't seem to find their feet. They live in their parents' basement playing video games and smoking weed every day, day after day. They don't have jobs. They're not in university. They're trying to fill the spot where a wife should be with pornography. And that's making them anxious, it's making them weak, and it's stealing the soul of their masculinity. And gosh, there's so much information about dopamine and things like that when uh, you are involved in pornography or you watch pornography and what that does to you. It is, it is bad for you. And that's coming more and more to light, which is good. But, you know, if a guy is like that, what woman wants anything to do with that? Some men might say, well, you know, women being sexually promiscuous might work out all right for me. I might be able to just have some fun with no commitment. 
The problem is, fellas, is that women are very picky. And a lot of people meet through dating apps and things like that today. And this is just something I've I've looked at. I don't pretend to have any idea how that stuff works. That was way before my time. But in dating apps, it shows that women only are interested in even having a conversation with 5% of the men. So she swipes right only 5% of the time. That means there's a 95% chance she's not picking you. As people lose respect for and no longer hold, uh, no longer honor the covenant between God and a man and a woman, and sexual morality goes by the wayside, marriage, which is the bedrock of culture and society, crumbles. So do men, so do women, so do families. And then society and culture follows. That's reality. You know, we've, we've, we have a society today and we're so wealthy and so comfortable that we take it for granted. But we, we can't do that. We can't do that. We need to take care of it. We need to respect some of these longstanding institutions that are the foundation of our culture and society. Not everything is. There are some things that can change, some things that can go. I totally get that, but there are some things that we need to hold on to. And one of those is sexual desire being practiced within the marriage covenant, being exercised within the marriage covenant. That's reality. We need to do that. So what do we do about it? That's that's a big one, isn't it? Well, we can really only do what we can do within ourselves. We have to we have to do this ourselves. We can we do what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6:18 where he says escape from sexual immorality. And we do what Paul says when he says I'm not going to be dominated by anything. Rule over your sexual desire instead of allowing it to rule over you. Honor and respect the marriage covenant. Honor and respect other people's marriage covenants. Tell yourself, I'm going to exercise the good desire God has given me in the context he intends. Remember, sexual desire is a good desire. It's not a negative or bad thing. We just exercise it within the context God intended for it. Value yourself. Allowing sexual immorality in your life devalues you. It makes you less desirable to potential marriage partners. Or, you know, if you're exercising sexual desire outside of your marriage covenant and you're married, you're going to destroy your marriage. You're going to wreck your family. You're going to make your kids' lives miserable. You're going to make your life miserable. There's all kinds of terrible things that are going to come from that. Be strong. Be courageous. If you're a young lady or any lady, remain pure. Value yourself. You are valuable. God values you. If you're a young man, make something of yourself. Exercise, work, study. Make yourself a man who's in that 5%. You don't have a lot of competition. You can do it. Be strong. Be as strong as you can. Make the most of yourself. Try to realize your potential. Be confident. Sacrifice yourself for your wife and family before you even know who they are. Don't give in to selfish desires. Don't let them dominate you. You dominate them. Sacrifice yourself for something larger than yourself. And it really comes down to that. You know, am I serving myself or something more than myself? And this is in line with what Paul is saying in the passage we read. Sexual immorality is, or sexual immorality, sexual promiscuity, whatever you want to call it, is selfish 
in the absolute most extreme way possible. It says, I'm sacrificing my value, my dignity, my marriage, my family, and ultimately my culture and community for what boils down to a dopamine hit, for what boils down to just a a primal desire that I can't control. It reminds me of Jacob selling his birthright for a bowl of, or sorry, not Jacob, Esau. Get my Bible character straight. It reminds me of him selling his birthright for a bowl of beans. Trust Jesus and follow God's commands. Serve something larger than yourself. Serve something transcendent. Serve God. That's what you can do about it. We can hold ourselves accountable. You can seek out a church that's going to help you be accountable, a church that practices church discipline and expects something of its members. But what if you're someone who says, I want to do what God wants me to do, but I have problems or I struggle with this or my life is in a difficult place. And that's a lot of Christians. Maybe someone thinks, I've already messed all this up. I can't do anything about it now. No matter where you are, God's grace still does matter. And it still applies to you. And he will forgive you. Repent. Trust God. Follow Jesus. The best thing you can do is to do the best you can from now on. Today can be a new day. It can be a new beginning. Sure, there there may be consequences from the past that you will have to deal with but you don't have to continue where you are. Jesus died on the cross for your sin. Accept him as your savior and live for him. And he will help you do that. And I want to leave you with this thought today. What can you do to make something right in your life? What can you do better? What sin needs to go? You know what it is. What's one thing you can do? Just one thing. Pray about it. Ask God, show me this one thing that I can do. And help me get rid of it. Because you know what's right, now do it. I certainly appreciate you taking the time to listen to this. I hope you found it helpful. And if you know someone who might find it helpful, please share it with them. I look forward to speaking to you next time.